This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Jason DeRosso and this is The Screen Show on RN. Coming up today, Nicole Kidman is a very damaged but very fierce veteran LA detective who looks like she's been chewed up and spat out by the city, but she's spitting back. The the film is called Destroyer. I lied. I stole. And worse. People are dead. It's my fault. Yeah, you'll hear my interview with the director of that great film, Karen Kasama, in a moment. Plus, you'll hear from the curator of a season of films about architecture, which is screening as part of Melbourne's Design Week. But first up, uh, Ricky Gervais is back with a six-part Netflix series called Afterlife, in which he plays a very grumpy widower working at a dying local newspaper, turning banality into human interest stories. And he has a very foul mouth to boot. Language warning ahead. Look, Tony, I know that you've had issues, okay, since you lost Lisa. Do you reckon? My wife dying affected me a bit. Of course, and, you know, I get that. I even told Sandy about it. Who's Sandy? The new girl. I didn't want her thinking this place was a madhouse. I had to say something. Look, I just need a bit of professionalism around here, okay, Tony? Please. I shouldn't have to explain this to you. You can't just go around being rude to people. You can, though. That's the beauty of it. There's no advantage to being nice and thoughtful and caring and have an integrity. It's a disadvantage, if anything. Well, let's see, because, uh, you know, if you carry on like this, I might have to let you go. No, you won't. You won't, that's what I'm saying, because you're a nice bloke. So I'll take advantage of you, like everyone else does here. You'll warn me, I'll ignore it. You'll give me another warning, I'll ignore it. I'll carry on doing what the fuck I want. Eventually you'll give up and I'll win. All right, with me in the studio is the resident TV critic of The Screen Show, Lauren Carroll-Harris. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Jason. What are we making of this return to our small screens for Ricky Gervais? I mean, is this, you know, I think he's been on the way and I think it's fair to say that's that's at least my opinion of his work of late. If you're looking at um, shows like Derek, which I really didn't get into, um, what is this like? Is it a return to form? It's kind of objectively quite bad in a lot of ways. You know, the writing is a bit of a lazy first draft with Gervais writing, directing, starring on his own. You can really feel the absence of a collaborator like Stephen Merchant, I think. Um, Gervais tends to put the moral of the story into the dialogue in a really kind of blatant and dire way. And the production looks a bit cheap. You know, as a as a show about the the loss of a loved one, I think it doesn't really work. But it speaks to something really interesting. Uh, Gervais has found this plotline, Reckoning with Bereavement, which I think is actually just a gateway to dealing with bitterness and cynicism and misanthropy, which is really prevalent, I think, in in the culture. Um, and I he's think become something of a lightning rod for that as exactly. well. I mean, in, in a lot of his stand-up shtick is about... You know, I can I can say I should have the right to say anything, and if you're offended, doesn't mean it's wrong. Exactly. And now he's got this cipher for himself on screen, which is a character with nothing to lose, which I think often makes for really interesting storytelling because it means like the story can go in really unpredictable 
directions and you sense that the through line of this character's life has just been shattered. But at the same time, it's almost like Gervais is morphing into Larry David before our eyes. What I'm actually really interested in is that this falling away of hope is all through comedy, but we recoil. The culture really recoils from Gervais's quite honest brand, I think, of, of bitterness. Mm. And yet we forget that 30 years ago, like Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David got away with so much meanness. And and why was that? Was it because they made more lovable, like zany characters? Or, or is it just because Gervais is so matter of fact, I think, about suicide and drug use, and that's too on the nose for a lot of people? What he's really made is this bizarre kind of maudlin suicide comedy yeah. fascinates yeah. me. All right. Well, let's, <laughs> should we hear, should we hear a, a clip, another clip from the show? Yeah, uh, let's. This is, um, as, as we've mentioned, this is Ricky Gervais's new show on Netflix. It's six parts. It's called Afterlife. And here he's hanging out with his nephew and we get a rare snippet of kindness from him. And just a warning, there's a language warning ahead. Whiskey. Daddy says you're sad since Auntie Lisa died. Yep. I'm sad too. I dream about her sometimes. Me too. Why didn't the doctors make her better? They tried. Why didn't Jesus save her? Because he's an arsehole. <laughs> Don't tell your mum and dad I said that. I won't. You had your tea? No. Hungry? Yeah. Should we go to the cafe? Yeah. Yeah. Come on then. You got any money? No. Loser. <clears throat> All right. Should point out that um, also very early on in the series, we see these sort of video diary entries left from uh, you know Ricky's character's wife who's addressing the camera directly and telling him basically not to be so miserable after she's gone. She's clearly on in that final stage of her illness and uh, and so he is frequently sort of consulting back to, to that, those video diary entries. But um, look, it's time to welcome into the studio as well. Uh, and we're very glad to have him here. It's uh, Mark Humphreys, who is satirist on ABC's, uh, ABC TV's 7.30 and host of Pointless on Channel 10. Mm-hmm. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wonderful and also a fan of Ricky Gervais, which is partly we've got you in because you're a, you're a comic of uh, some repute and also uh, a fan of Ricky Gervais. So we're, we're after your professional insight. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, well, I think like a lot of a lot of people out there, I'm, I'm someone who was a huge fan of the Gervais Merchant collaboration, uh, as, as opposed to the Merchant Ivory collaboration, which is completely unrelated. Um, sorry, it was a, it's a terribly highbrow joke for this uh, screen <laughs> show, I thought. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think the, you know the golden age of uh, The Office and extras is what I really, you know, that's was, your gold was, standard for Gervais. Yeah, exactly. And then I think there were still moments in Life's Too Short. I think as a, as a series, it, it didn't quite stick together, but there were moments. But then once he started going off on his own, like you, Derek, I couldn't really stick with. Uh, and in terms of his stand-up, he's, he's become increasingly sort of abrasive. His Twitter persona is, is quite repellent, I find as well. Uh, even if I agree with him on, on, on certain issues, I still find that he's just looking for an argument a lot of the time and trying to put people down. So uh, with all of that going into it, uh, I was a little bit uh, skeptical. And, uh, but it, I, I've got to say, I think the show started so bleak, but it ultimately did grow on me. 
Yeah, it actually has a redemption arc, mm. doesn't it? Not unlike The Office, we should say, which isn't just a comedy. It's a, it's a love story between, you know, Dawn and and um, the other... Tim. Oh, and Tim. Tim and Pete. Yeah. yeah, it's very easy to forget that. And you know what I think? Gervais has become increasingly known as an anti-PC crusader and this enemy of woke culture and woke comedy. And it's almost like he's using this to speak back to that criticism directly. Yeah, because yes. is this a critique, do you think, of, of that abrasiveness that's crept into his stand-up work recently? Yeah, well, I felt like this character out of all the characters he's created is closest to his real, or what we it understand is, to be the it? real Gervais. Um, so, and it felt like there were a lot of lines where it just felt like, oh, that's that's just a that's a grievance that you've got that you just wanted to to air here. It doesn't necessarily add anything to the to the plot. There are like multiple characters reference Twitter and issues that they have with Twitter, and I always just go, I think that's just Gervais just planting himself into those characters. So, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, like I say, I think it's the closest representation of, of the real Gervais and, and they can sometimes be a bit unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, he's really grappling with something. You se- you can mm. sense it that, you know, life isn't what he thought it would be or something like that. And I, I think in his stand-up in particular, you're right, he's a contrarian, he's an oppositionist um, and he has a contemptuousness mm. for, for other people and an intellectual arrogance that can be really alienating. Mm. And it means that when you like him, you're, he's almost forming quite a toxic bond with the audience where it's like, we're the clever ones, everyone else is an idiot. I think it's hard to know what to do when you become as big as he became. I think, you know, I think part of the reason that The Office and Extras were so refreshing because it was it was outsider voices and it was these underdogs and he was so self-deprecating. And it's hard to be, continue to be self-deprecating when we know that you are insanely successful and in many ways a genius uh, and, you know, hugely wealthy. So his, what he now finds irritating is no longer the... What the average person finds it, irritating exact, as such. It's exactly. not the man in the street. And, no. he, and that has been his shtick, hasn't it? Trying to be the man in, in the street. And yet we know since about the time he moved to America and started hosting the Golden Globes that he's been, yes, enormously <laughs> successful. So I, I always think he's, he's struggled to get back to to the original source of inspiration for those great characters early on, David mm. Brent especially, um, because how can you relate to someone like a David Brent Sure. Um, if you're insanely successful and you can have anything money can buy? Yes, because The Office wasn't just about the awkward, the comedy of awkwardness and humiliation and, and delusion. You know, David Brent is just this kind of failed man. It was also <laughs> about like the hollowness and emptiness of that office life. Mm, I always yeah. thought the bits that really spoke to me were... The printer? The and print- yeah. <laughs> Exactly, Mark. The cutaway moments in between scenes where they just zoom in on a photocopier, just mm. zh, zh, I was like, wow, that is dark. Mm. You know, the repetitiveness, <laughs> the monotony. And I think that, you know, Afterlife is really missing that visual mm. quality. But I also think if your whole sense of humour is structured around preserving your God-given right to be you know, insulting and, and racist and sexist and homophobic, that's, well, okay, cool. If you want to be an eggplant emoji, like, that's fine, but that's actually a bit basic and lame. Is that how extreme he is, do you think? Well, he tries to defend himself a little bit. There's an ongoing um, gag, for example, where he forms a friendship, a very sweet friendship, I think, with a sex worker. Um, And... And he, you know, really, uh, yeah, I, I see it as a genuine friendship and he's, he's making fun of himself and his, his own um, refusal to get on board with what he sees as PC language. I mean, Well, he I, calls her a prostitute in the first right. scene where they meet and she right. corrects him, sex worker. Mm. I just find this interesting that 
that in in the end this this show does seem to be heading towards a self critique, and it's very it's quite surprising. I mean, I, I agree with you, Mark, that it's not you know it's not particularly. It's not the the most glittering, brilliant, well timed, pacey Ricky Gervais we've ever seen. Mm. Um, he's directing himself, and I think it's that's a bit of an awkward. Yeah. Um, at this point, anyway, I, th- I think he's not great with that. He's not in a sweet spot with that, with the comic timing and so forth. But it is this exercise in self critique, I think, ultimately. Um, that's an interesting thought. I mean, but but I'm not convinced that he comes out of it. The real Ricky Gervais comes out of it at the end with any additional self-reflection. Though I think he's still in full <laughs> Gervais mode. So maybe it works. Yeah, I think it works narratively for that ca- for that character to undergo that. But I, I, yeah, I wonder whether. But yeah. he's still sitting up in his LA garret. Yeah, I <laughs> wonder how self-aware he is there. But I mean, I, I think I'm being quite harsh on him because I still, you know, I do respect the body of work enormously. <laughs> well, tell me how much Ricky Gervais has been an influence on just the delivery that comics. That, comics started to use post The Office especially. I th- I think I started to hear a David Brent lilt everywhere after The Office. It was awful, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely true. This cadence. You yeah, know. It is a cadence, absolutely. And I, I remember because I was in high school when the series came out and it just became everyone had the way that people spoke was all, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, that, was, that, that, uh, that was so common and because we loved it. It was refreshing. We hadn't heard people speak like that before. Uh, and so, and that similar sort of thing happened a couple of years later then when Anchorman came out. Mm. Suddenly everyone's, well, not everyone, but uh, yeah, you start hearing a lot of people sounding like Will Ferrell. So, this does happen. I know that, you know, I'm a huge fan of Alan Partridge and so, a lot of m- my persona now is inevitably infused with partridgeisms. Um, so it, 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 yeah, it's a, <laughs> it can be an unfortunate side effect of the success of something. I mean, I guess he also started making The Office before the idea of snarkiness was really everywhere mm-hmm. in our culture. What I wonder is, like, do you have to be a little bit mean to be a successful comic? Because that scathingness mm. is quite appropriate, for example, in political satire, right? Yes, I think it helps to be angry about things. Mm. I think uh, if you get too comfortable, then there's nothing really for you to rail against. And you're absolutely right, yeah, political satire especially, um, yeah, you need to be looking at the news and, and, and see something and go, this needs, to, you, you need to feel something about it because otherwise it's just, it just feels, it's just a bit weak. Um, so obviously I don't want to show my colours, but occasionally things, you know, yeah, c- certain characters appear and you go, you know what, I think uh, that person needs to be t- taken down a big or two. <laughs> um, but enough about Clive Palmer. Uh, <laughs> but is the problem in um, Afterlife that is, is the problem that Ricky Gervais is, in some ways has less to be kicking against, but has a lot to be getting very soft and gooey on the inside about. So this is a very maudlin uh, show at times. And it's very sweet. And is it too sweet? I mean, do, do you think it's too sweet, Lauren? I'm quite partial to a little bit of sentimentality. <laughs> very sentimental, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Actually, I do have a clip where he's talking to his dog, who's really his saviour. It's certainly not subtle writing, but I don't think the New Yorker calling it a belittlement of grief is, is really defensible when you hear this. If you could open a tin, I'd be dead now. But you can't, can you? Because you're useless. Who's useless? Who's useless? You are. You are. You're useless. Good girl. All right, so in that clip, the dog basically saves him. He had planned to suicide and the dog saves him. It's an unusually life-affirming moment and I think it shows that 
this this is a weird and complex show that speaks to this moment in time. He's really trying to reach for some kind of hope in life. Mark, is it worth watching Afterlife? I, I actually thought it was ultimately worth sticking with. Uh, it, it, the there were laugh out loud moments. I mean, for comedy fans, it you know it did make me laugh. But then there are whole chunks. It, it does fall into that sort of dramedy trap where there's whole chunks that are just weighed down with drama. Not not that it's a bad thing. It and he's he's not the best actor, is he? I mean, he's kind of. Oh, yeah, that's a major problem for the show, that he doesn't have the dramatic skills to communicate this despair, the grip, the I would despair. Say. But did you cry in it? Did, mm. you, did it make you cry? No. No? Some reviewers have talked about it making them cry. Did it make you cry? It, I did get a little bit emotional towards the end, absolutely, yes. Um, but I found it t- touching. But yeah, exactly. But in terms of his performance, the uh, thing is, I, again, I think he, he perfected it years ago and it's hard to top. The scene where David Brent asks, please don't make me redundant, is yes. brilliant oh, acting. And it's one of the it, yeah. yes, darkest and most heart-wrenching so, um, moments yeah. in television in the last couple of decades. Completely. And so I'm always looking going, I just don't think you can, <laughs> you're never going to be able to top that. Mm. So. But I think the show is about that as well. <laughs> sure, true. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great talking to you both uh, about this new uh, series from Ricky Gervais. It, it is called, as we've said, Afterlife. It's currently available to watch on Netflix. Thanks to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Humphreys, of course, uh, a satirist on ABC TV 730 and host of Pointless on Channel 10 and our resident TV critic here at The Screen Show, Lauren Carroll Harris. Now, let's change the pace a bit and uh, head to the big screen. Nicole Kidman is back in cinemas this week playing a veteran cop who's traumatised by the past in Destroyer, a superb new mystery thriller from Girl Fight director Karen Kasama. No ID, no idea. I know your whole story. Placing our agent undercover, she'll look right enough next to our guy. If we do this, we accept the consequences. Do you love me? You know I do. You chose to play cops and robbers. Destroyer alternates between two different versions of Nicole Kidman's character, Detective Erin Bell. In the present day, it follows her hunt for a killer. And in flashback, it depicts her as a rookie cop on an undercover mission many, many years earlier. It begins with the discovery of a dead body, a man on the concrete bank of the LA River. Kidman appears in a dusty leather jacket, walking with a limp, her hair unkempt and sensible short. She pays scant attention to her fellow cops at the crime scene as she squats beside the corpse and declares she knows who did this. 
In flashback, we see her young, ambitious and beautiful and about to be parachuted into a band of drugged up bank robbers posing as the girlfriend of another undercover cop played by Sebastian Stan. Now, the chemistry that these two colleagues share on screen is obvious, and in an early scene, director Karen Kasama has them quizzing each other about their alter egos so that they can get their stories right. And at a certain point, they practice a kiss to see if they can try and fake the emotion. Well, it's a matter of time before they won't have to try. Now, from the moment that director Karen Kasama debuted on the world stage at the 2000 Sundance Film Festival with Girl Fight, her film about a teenage girl boxing with boys and wrestling with demons, starring the then-newcomer Michelle Rodriguez, well, it was clear she had an uncommon gift for colour and light and a sense for physicality, especially female physicality, as a mirror to the soul or to a psychological inner life. In Nicole Kidman she's found a wonderful collaborator for Destroyer. As the older Erin, the actor is a portrait of long-held anger, her skin brittle and dry like a chain smoker's, her appearance gaunt as if affected by a slow-acting disease. Between the older and younger versions of this character Erin Bell, there are not insignificant layers of subtle CGI and makeup. But Kidman's talent here is undeniable. It shines through. And in the younger Erin, her blue eyes sparkle with emotion and increasingly, and this is important, a recklessness. Destroyer, in certain moments, recalls the heady romance of Girl Fight. The difference, however, is that this is a work of a more mature artist, focused on a story of how good things become corrupted and luck runs out. Co-written by Kusama's husband, Phil May, with Matt Manfredi, Destroyer is bruising and gripping. Los Angeles, especially its crumbling eastern sprawl, serves as an evocative backdrop, the sun falling on the concrete and sand, turning everything pink and beige through the lens of cinematographer Julie Kirkwood. And there's a series of vivid characters that bring the film's themes of greed and corruption into sharp relief, as both versions of Erin Bell, the older and the younger, head into their journey through the LA underbelly. Destroyer reminds me of... Those great, slightly unhinged psychological L.A. noirs like The Long Goodbye or even the 80s remake of Breathless with Kidman. Kasama, I think, has created an anti-hero who embodies the frantic melancholy of it all and breathes fresh life into a familiar archetype. But what about the choice to cast her in both timelines? Here's Karen Kasama discussing casting Nicole Kidman. The, the notion of two actors had been discussed, but really, truly, very briefly. Um, I was really interested in the idea of seeing and feeling the toll of this woman's, um, the weight of the history on her and the consequence of her, of her shame around her actions in the past. And I know that Nicole was also really drawn to the idea of playing essentially both sides of the coin. And, and so in the end, knowing that that's how she felt, um, we kind of all moved forward just saying we're going to try and pull this off, that she plays both temporal roles. Did you have to shoot them, uh, you know, separate from each other? Obviously, in the film, we have the flashbacks continually reminding us of who she was. I imagine you would have you would have chosen to shoot uh, the two time frames in different different Definitely. moments. Yeah. 
We did. I mean, um, it was funny. We initially had thought, oh, maybe we should shoot the flashbacks first. But for a bunch of practical reasons, we sort of gravitated towards shooting all of the present day material first. And in many respects, I think that was a, a good decision because what Nicole is doing in the present day incarnation of the role is incredibly demanding and emotionally incredibly draining. And so there was a a slight sense of relief, I think, for her when she got to play that character as a younger woman who was also just, frankly, had had more hope in her life and um, and and a little bit of a sort of reckless playfulness. And and so I think it ended up working out that she played the present day version of Erin Bell. And then when we started shooting the flashback material, I think she had a better understanding of what she had evolved from yeah. to land in that present day. So, so she really gave that flashback version of the character a lot of depth. I think what works really well as well is the, the sort of makeup and, well, I'm not quite sure how you've managed this time difference in her character in particular. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Can you sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on, on how you sure. make her look so young? And, then, and, and obviously in the older uh, version of the character, I presume that's mostly old-fashioned makeup and, and those kinds of uh, things. It is, and it's really interesting. Uh, Nicole is... She she's a little bit more hesitant to talk about what happens behind the curtain, and I I I, underst- I completely understand her desire to preserve the magic, but I I think it's it's fair, and she wouldn't be mad at me for saying that. Well, first of all, <laughs> making her look you know twenty twenty five years younger um, was the easy part. She she has this incredible porcelain skin. In a way, the more difficult task every day was was getting to that more um, kind of physically and emotionally corrupted character of the present day and that involved quite a bit of of makeup and some prosthetics and and just a general reorienting of her whole physicality to somebody who's kind of broken come on why don't you bring up your phone I need it in a minute okay well I got a special agent calling me from the FBI pushing me on where you're at and what you're doing. What's that about? Old friend. Old friend, okay. Taz Ferner's all hot, saying that you uh, took a bag of guns from him? I'm working. Bella, come on, deal me in. I'm looking out for you, man. This thing I'm on, this guy I'm looking for, I own it, all right? It's mine, just me. I mean, she's, it's such a wonderful character study, and but I love the way that the mm. script is actually quite minimalist in some ways. And this is a film that talks mm-hmm. directly to your soul, really, as a viewer, via images mm. and via sound as well. Um, and I understand mm. this was quite, you know, this this wasn't a huge shoot. This was, I think, 30-odd days. Yeah, am I right? Yeah. Um, and 30, yet, 33 days. And yet it's so beautiful to look at. And... I think a, a lesser director would not have come up with this kind of very intense and rich sort of experience. I mean, I'm thinking of even one little detail that stuck in my mind. At one point, you've got Nicole Kidman against in a bathroom against a kind of 
a sort of warm pink wall. And then you cut to mm-hmm. a shot of, uh, I think it's a, well, it's a, a complex where there are sort of lockup boxes, security uh, mm-hmm. sort of things that people can rent and put this stuff in. Facility, storage facility. Yeah. There you go. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And you've got the sun shining on those <laughs> white walls and they're the same sort of hue of pink. And there's such an attention mm-hmm. to detail in the way that, shots transition and and in the way that poetically I think the film is speaking. Tell me, mm. is how do you manage that? I mean, is that all in immense preparation? How, how do you get a film yeah. looking this wonderful? Oh, well, first of all, I appreciate that so much because, um, you know, directors, I think, often pay attention to every little detail and don't know if anybody notices or cares. So um, when, for instance, that pink to pink transition that you just mentioned um, is noted and, and noticed, I'm, I'm so, so truly grateful to hear it. Um, I mean, I think it's a combination. I think in some respects, luck is one's best friend if you embrace it in and in production and you you hope to get moments that surprise you or or elements within the frame that that do something you hadn't anticipated but i have to say that i think for my prep my process i i do tend to prepare a lot and and so for instance my attention to color and set design and props and and just the texture and the um the nuance of of every element in the frame to me just helps enrich the characters and enrich the world of the story that I'm trying to tell. So, um, what were some of the elements you know, that, that I, you, I, what were some of the elements that you, you, you came to the shoot with in your mind? Were you thinking, this is what I want to capture textually. This is a theme I want to have through the film. Well, something that just, I, I find myself drawn to generally, um, you know, in terms of photographers I love and spaces that I admire, but, but I definitely wanted to apply to this film, is just the effect of time. Um, and so what that does to fabrics and what that does to walls and what that does to people's faces, you know, time is, a, is in some respects the, the most profound destroyer of all in, within the movie. Um, time continues even when we won't and don't. And so I think that's something that on a stylistic level, I definitely wanted to, to kind of lean into was the idea that um, this character is in a lot of old and aging spaces. And one of them is her very physical self. Yeah, and yeah. so um, I, think I, I think I paid a lot of attention to those kinds of um, surfaces just to kind of, I think it, first of all, it just sort of breaks up clean over clean or over kind of um yeah uh, sort of sanitized for mm. yeah yeah and so for me it was important to sort of understand that a lot of what i was exploring a lot of the worlds i was looking at were incredibly neglected and the product of those environments um were also the people in them and they too are largely pretty neglected um what, what and, part of la were you shooting in does something yeah, yes. Yeah, so. We were all over. We we were mostly we were mostly on the east side of Los Angeles. Um we were outside of Los Angeles in the desert, um which is its own incredibly um stark and sometimes kind of frightening environment. Um and then we were on the the in the southern part of LA that includes, you know, Crenshaw and getting closer to Palos Verdes and um that's a whole other 
set of communities. So um, I feel like I was really lucky to see so much of L.A. and also just give a pretty authentic portrait of the city to the audience. I do love the way that in, in this film there is a sense of the perverse, I think, or the grotesque that I mm. think that you have mm. a real uh, sensibility for, a great sensibility for, and you like, you know how to make that compelling for the audience. I mean, mm. there's the Russian Thank roulette you. scene. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a, that's a funny, um, I love this compliment, but I, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if everyone would take it as a compliment. Oh, but why do, why, do. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it is a compliment. Why do you take it as a compliment just out of interest? I mean, why, why do you instantly well, like that? I guess because I think um, I'm interested in perversity because I see it all around me. Um, I'm I'm interested in moral corruption because it's everywhere around me, and I'm trying to grapple with it and explore it in a way that is still watchable enough to come away with some kind of I don't know, not, not necessarily a conclusion about how to deal with it, but just a sense that it exists and needs to, to be dealt with. And so um, I also find a lot of humor in the perversity of the modern world. And so um, as much as it's icky, tricky territory, I think, you know, when, when you have those scenes that are in the movie that you kind of want to look away, you, you sort of don't want to keep looking, but then something compels you to keep watching. I think there's an, in, there's a, this innate sly humor in, in that too. And, and in a movie that is ultimately, I, I think probably as difficult at times to watch as this movie is for some viewers, you need humor, you know, just to, to, to give audiences a, a welcome break. Well, that brings us quite nicely to uh, the hand job scene which I know you've spoken about a lot. Uh, I mean, and this is essentially a moment where she gives a hand job in order to get some information to an old associate mm-hmm. who's now dying and is terminally ill. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, and it's a wonderful mm-hmm. scene. And it's one of, you know, a few in the film. The other one's the Russian roulette scene with the gun, but I won't go into mm-hmm. that. But this is just this, this mm-hmm. kind of scene that I love in cinema where you're watching it thinking oh, this isn't going to get any worse, is it? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yeah. And and, she, and she's not going to suggest that, you know, that the ickiness of this act is that, oh, she is going to, you know. And there are so many little details in the performances and the way they deal with the sheets and things and the way they hold themselves in this room together. Um, is that already on the script? I mean, I know your, your husband is one of the uh, screenwriters, um, but is that already mm-hmm. on the script or do you take some... Uh, credit for just pushing that into that sweet spot even further as director? Well, I hope I can take some credit um, because that's definitely the kind of scene where where Phil and Matt and myself, we all agreed that the only way it, it lives on the screen um, and, and we keep our heads up is, um, is for it to be absolutely clear that that really no one is a victim in this scene, that everyone is sort of there by, through their own agency, no matter how warped their agendas might be. And something that I had felt in working with that actor, James Jordan, um, who plays Toby, with, with whom Nicole is collaborating in that scene, what's so wonderful about him is he's actually such an, uh, he's like this big teddy bear, but he just does a wonderful job playing the opposite of that in in his roles. And I had said to him, you know, it occurs to me that this is the first time and in a long time and probably the only time 
that this man in his life now, which is, is radically shortened by cancer, is going to be touched by a woman, any, any woman other than his mother. And he just started to cry when I said that to him. And he said, that tells me what I need to do for this scene. And so you, you feel this horrible sense of need from him and this strange, unholy alliance between the two of them as they're doing this scene um, that, that I think kind of goes beyond some of the discourse that we understandably have to be having about the notion of sexual favors. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a little, this, this is a, this is just simply a different situation. Oh, sure. It's and working so, on many um, levels, as they like to say. I mean, this scene is, yeah. I mean, that, and that's why it's great. It's, it's very, it's, it's all gray zone. Yes. Yeah, um, I, I I can't speak to you about this film without without mentioning the notion of parenthood in it, and and you've mm-hmm. already spoken about agency. There's a strong theme in this film that the older Nicole Kidman character, um, that the older Erin, enunciates more than once about taking mm. responsibility for your decisions. I found that really interesting. Mm. Is I mean, it's it's a film at the end with a very, I think, quite clear idea of what good morality mm. is or how to be good in the mm-hmm. world. Um, and, mm. and, she, and she has a very strange relationship with her daughter who's going off the rails. She doesn't like the daughter's boyfriend. We're mm-hmm. worried for the daughter as the audience. Um, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that, moral, on, on that essential moral core, I think, of this film. Um, well, once again, I really appreciate that you, you, you picked up on that because I think that's, that's what drew me to the material in the first place is, is, is we have this opportunity as, as an audience to, to watch a character who in many respects struggles so deeply with um, the notion of morality and struggles with the moral call within herself because she has made really uh, tragic choices and uh, that, that have some catastrophic consequences within her life. And, and those choices reverberate to everyone, uh, everyone close to her. And so I think for me, the, the, the core of the movie emotionally, and, and I want to say spiritually, is, is about this idea of moral accountability and, and taking taking responsibility for the choices we make and, and the decisions um, of, our, of our daily life. And, and, and I hope that what the film is attempting to address is that this is not an easy process. Um, you know, this shift or movement that we could all be making toward taking responsibility for ourselves is um, it's painful. And, and in, in some instances, feels impossible to achieve. And so despite the kind of grimness of the world that I was depicting with the film, I hope that what we're coming away from the film with uh, in terms of this character's journey is that there is an essential necessity and usefulness to being accountable for for our choices and for our our moral or immoral dis- misdeeds and um and so i was attempting to look at her without judgment in that regard so that perhaps the audience could be feeling the 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 weight and i want to say the the ec- ecstatic transcendence of of finally finally making steps toward that kind of accountability.
Karen Kusama, uh, I think it's a wonderful film. And thanks very much for speaking to me about it. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. It was lovely, Jason. Director Karen Kusama, her superb new thriller, Destroyer, is out in Australian cinemas this week. Claire Nichols is here with the latest arts news and Afterlife, which we spoke about at the beginning of the show, has been causing controversy in Australian art circles. How? Well, a feature of the Ricky Gervais show is this big piece of art that sits behind the couch in his character's living room and the piece looks like an Aboriginal dot painting, which got people here wondering who had painted it. Uh, The bad news is it wasn't by an Aboriginal artist at all. Instead, it was by an English painter, Timna Woolard, who had replicated or copied the style of Aboriginal art. So here in Australia, Gabrielle Sullivan from the Indigenous Art Code says the work is a piece of cultural theft. It's highly unethical. And her organisation plans to write to Netflix, which produces the show, to encourage it to create formal protocols for handling Indigenous content. Has the artist herself had anything to say? Yeah, Timna Woolard has apologised. She says she didn't know the piece was going to be used. She actually painted it back in 1999 when she was commissioned to paint several paintings in a variety of styles for a UK-based television and film prop company and she basically hadn't seen the work since then. She says uh, she would never paint such a work in this day and age and she has removed the image of this work from her website. And what about Netflix? What's been their reaction? Well, Netflix has been commenting Uh, contacted by the ABC for comment, but so far, Jason, yet to respond. Okay. Uh, Let's move to Hollywood and Disney has finalised its acquisition of 20th Century Fox. Yeah, we've talked about this deal before, Jason, but it was all finalised this week. So Disney is going to acquire the Fox Film and TV Studios, the FX Networks and National Geographic in a deal worth $100 billion Australian dollars. The deal effectively cuts the number of big studios in Hollywood from six down to five. So this is a really huge change for the media landscape. Yeah, and speaking of studio news, there's also big news at Warner Brothers. Yeah, the organisation CEO, Kevin Sujihara, has stepped down from the studio over sexual misconduct allegations. And this is a big deal because this is one of the highest ranking Hollywood executives to lose his position in the Me Too era. Earlier this month, Warner Media launched an investigation into Mr. Sujihara after a story in The Hollywood Reporter detailed text messages between him and the British actress Charlotte Kirk going back to 2013. And the messages suggested that Mr. Sujihara had promised roles to the actress in exchange for sex. Now, I should make it clear that Charlotte Kirk has denied any inappropriate behaviour by Mr. Sujihara, but Warner Media says his exit is in the studio's best interest. All right. Well, while he stood down, James Gunn has been rehired. Tell me about this. Yeah, you might remember the Guardians of the Galaxy director was fired from the franchise last year Mm. over these tweets that were about 10 years old that joked about subjects like paedophilia and rape. And at the (sighs) time, he apologised. He said his tweets were unfortunate efforts to be provocative. But you might remember also at this time, the stars of Guardians of the Galaxy really rallied behind him. They signed an open letter stating their support for Gunn. It was signed by Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Bradley Cooper. And now Disney has announced he's back on board. He's been rehired to direct the third film in the series. He says he's tremendously grateful for the support he has received in the months since his dismissal. Hmm. All right. And finally, uh, farewell to a pioneer, Barbara Hammer. Yeah, so... 
Barbara Hammer was an experimental filmmaker and artist and, and as you say, one of the pioneers of lesbian film. Her breakthrough film was Dyke Tactics in 1974 and the story behind this film is really interesting, Jason. She took this group of women into the country to film them dancing and bathing amongst nature and her plan was to make a feature-length film from it. But as she told an audience at the Whitney Museum last year, that didn't work out. I went into the editing room at San Francisco State and locked myself in to spend the night cutting. And let me tell you, the footage was there, but I was so bored. (laughs) I fell asleep. (laughs) So I cut 60 minutes into two minutes. (laughs) I cut for the action. But there was so much beautiful footage that I thought, I've got to show that. So I started layering it so that my movie scope was holding four pieces of film going through at one time. That's the late filmmaker Barbara Hammer. She made more shorts. She made feature films. She continued to work into her 70s and and had a 13-year battle with ovarian cancer. So farewell to Barbara Hammer. Mm, Great character too. All right, thanks. That's Claire Nichols with the Arts News there. Well, if you're in Melbourne, you're in luck because that Design Week is currently underway. It actually runs for 10 days, so uh, you get more than what it says in the can. And um, part of the program features a series of films about architecture. Uh, here's an arc- excerpt from one of these films. This is artist James Terrell. Maybe art and things done by artists and architects are more a church than anything written by priests and scholars. You know, who has the ownership of spirituality. The fact that art is involved in all these different religions is maybe an indication that art has a more universal language than the brand name religions that we have created. Well, the collection of films is curated by Richard Sawada and Richard Sawada is in the studio in Melbourne. Welcome, Richard, to The Screen Show. Thank you, Jason. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. How many films have you curated as part of this uh, Melbourne Design Week uh, special? There are 11 films in the program, but as you'd be familiar with the way the curatorial process works, Jason, behind the 11 probably sits maybe another 30 or 40 that you see in the process while you're while you're putting the program together to to you know sift through how they kind of link together really I guess and what did you find curating this did you find it an overarching theme presented itself pretty early on or did you have to go sort of looking for one or did you not care <laughs> it's kind of a little bit of everything Jason <laughs> like I go into the curatorial process without Uh, looking for anything in particular and try and let the films do their own talking. Because again, as you know, like in the curatorial process, even when you're looking at films like from an international, on an international perspective, you know, every year or every 18 months, there is something that underpins the way 
the artistic community is thinking, not just with films, but, you know, with uh, a whole range of other forms where, you know, someone in Iceland will be working on similar themes to someone in Argentina uh, and someone in New Zealand working on similar themes with someone in the UK or something like that. And then, you know, when you the more films that you look at, the more you kind of see this um, voice or this, um, it's not necessarily thematic, but a tone that, uh, you know, that comes out. And then you think, oh, okay. And certainly once you start to see the way that I kind of work, it might sound odd, but or maybe overly scientific, but, you know, I look for tri- triangular shapes in the program. And as soon as I see three points of a triangle of similarity, I think, okay, this is can be the core of a program around which I can build. So that's kind of how the films came together and they're from all over the world. And I guess the the theme of them or the underlying um, sense is that like the excerpt you just played, there is a, 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 an enormous amount of spirituality uh, and reflection in the works, which which I really love and I think really binds them together. Yeah, and uh, also a sense, I guess, of, and and it's the other side of that coin, a sense of mortality that's being mm-hmm. reflected upon. I mean, one of the films I've seen is a very meditative slow film that employs a, a formal minimalism. It's just shot, shot, shot. It's called... Uh, and locked off shots mostly. Uh, it's called Homo sapiens, but there are very few Homo sapiens on screen. It's more about our absence, I think, from the frame. Uh, and, and it reminds me a, a bit of how there's a link between our current fascination with decay in photography and film and the 19th century fascination with um, the painting and drawing of ruins. But describe Homo sapiens for those who don't know anything about it. Oh wow! It's um, it, it's an unusual film. It's not narrative driven, as you said. It's uh, there, there is no talking in the film, and there are no people in the film. Uh, it's about um, envir- abandoned environments, I suppose, and the environments themselves are of significant scale. It's not just like abandoned buildings, but you know, it's abandoned cities uh, and abandoned shopping centres, uh, and you, you kind of look at that they're, they're, they've been overtaken by their environment, so they're, they're filled with trees and. Uh, bushes and uh, shrubs and grass and all kinds of you and know water, natural rain. Yeah, yeah. Which I and love they've just been the sound of rain. <laughs> they've been consumed by the environment where when they were built, they dominated the environment. So uh, you're right. It is about um, existence and kind of folly in many ways as well. And the film. Because it doesn't have a narrative, you know, a forceful narrative behind it, and the camera, the shots are really quite long, and you're literally forced to look into every corner of the frame, uh, and you, it becomes quite fascinating watching the way leaves are blowing across the across the the foyers in these shopping centres, and then you kind of think about the directions of the wind and what the elements are doing to the building mm. structure and and such. It's really very beautiful it's, to look at it's and partic- fascinating. It's particularly poignant as well when you realise that some of these structures were built in the Soviet era. Yes. And so, I mean, there's a, there's a, a massive project of, um, I guess, philosophical modernism, political modernism yes. that is now, and, you know, aesthetically these buildings represent a kind of modernism as well. Yes. And they're crumbling. Oh, yeah. And even, but even when you look at them crumbling, you look at the architecture of them and you think, oh, wow, that is really something. That work is audacious and really um, very um, impressive and quite beautiful often and striking in their own rights. But 
not striking enough to allow them to survive. Yeah. Look, it's uh, Homo sapiens is showing Saturday and Sunday. Uh, so if you're in Melbourne, you can catch it. Another film I've seen that's also showing uh, over the weekend. And in fact, if you're listening uh, live to this first radio broadcast uh, to the screen show, it's showing tonight, Thursday at 7pm at the Lido. Uh, it's called The Architecture of Infinity. And we heard mm. James Turrell, uh, an excerpt of James Turrell speaking in that documentary, uh, this is a film very much picking on picking up on the thread of spirituality mm. in architecture, isn't it? It, it is. I love it. Uh, it's such a uh, like it, there is a, a a lot of talking heads in the film, talking to architects behind the work and that sort of thing. But you know, the the, the striking nature of the film is the simplicity of it uh, and the simplicity of the buildings and the beautiful clean lines in the filmmaking itself. The, I think the film is such a beautiful reflection of the simplicity of the philosophy and the spirituality of the architects, which as in the excerpt that you played before, it really, the designs really transcend any specific kind of religion and connect with people in very elemental ways through yeah. light and shape and texture and um, and, there are, and the camera does move in this. We sort of move about the spaces and uh, it's directed by Christoph Schaub, who is a Swiss guy, I think. And uh, it's also very much through his voiceover, an essay about losing his father at a young age and becoming... Um, and he articulates it very nicely, but becoming obsessed with architecture and spirituality uh, since childhood and since that loss. But yes, that's the architecture of infinity also showing uh, this weekend on Sunday, I believe. But Richard, you can uh, see all the, the full listing of uh, films that you've curated at the Melbourne Design Week website, right? That's that's right. If you just go to the National Gallery of Victoria website, you'll come across it or just um, type in, you know, uh, Melbourne Design Week and you'll get to it. And uh, the films and an incredible array of events, uh, many of them free, most of them free yep. actually, uh, are there for you. Well, get out there if you are in Melbourne or visiting Melbourne this weekend. Richard, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure as always, Jason. That's Richard Sawada, critic and curator of the film program at this year's Melbourne Design Week. Well, we've come to the end of another show, another screen show here at RN. Uh, remember, you can write in and tell us what you've thought about our reviews and our discussions. Tell us if you've been watching the Ricky Gervais show, Afterlife, that we talked about earlier in the show. If so, what do you make of it? Let us know. Write to Arts on RN, all one word, Arts on RN at abc.net.au and uh, we are on Twitter as well uh, at our handle is simply arts on RN uh, I'm on Twitter Jason DeRosso just search for me JDRRR Lauren Carol Harris is on Twitter we're all on Twitter but if you can't be bothered uh, checking in with us during the week on social media and you just want to hear us again in seven days time well you can do that too it's the screen show coming at you again in a week until then go see Destroyer and this is some music from the soundtrack of it see you next week listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.